Church, I'm going to say something that's super obvious, is that our choices get us to an outcome. Our free will choices will end us getting us somewhere. Either it will be an either a desired outcome or an undesired outcome. The key in where we end up with our decision making is if we're seeking our interests, also known as our will, or if we're seeking God's will and what he wants done. You see, we're going to see that in today's text at the Tower of Babel. In today's text, speaking of math and numbers, you're going to see two attitudes of pride from humanity towards God. You'll then see two reactions or consequences from God. You're then going to see three anthropology side notes because we're talking about the scattering of humanity and how we get all these different cultures. And then we're going to see two pieces of good news. Are we ready to go on this trip? Let's do it. Let's get into the text. Verse 1. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia to settle there. In this message, I'm going to be making some side note observations on anthropology, which has to do with the study of human origins, which has to do with the study of societies and how they began. So this is the first one in which we look at. Human beings started off with one language. All modern linguists agree with this statement. The reason I'm sharing it this morning and why I'm making these statements of observation with societies is because it is evidence that God's word has way better answers than whatever you'll find in other worldviews. Amen? So this is just one of those things to show credibility to the word of God, the Bible. Let's get back into the text. You see, this is following, the post-Babel is following the post-flood that we, we talked about last week. That's 100 to 300 years after the flood. And here's where we're going to end up picking up. We're going to see the attitudes of humanity after the flood. Verse 3, they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harder them with fire. Then they, came, then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous. And here's what I want us to focus on. Keep us from being scattered all over the world. So as your tour guide back to Babylon at this moment, there's approximately a million people since last chapter or last week's sermon where we see in Genesis 6 that God restarts everything and then ends up humanity being eight people. We get that because Roel, Rabbi, from jewishanswers.org suggests mathematically that if you put the the growing rate of today and you put it on those eight people and you allow it to grow for 100 to 300 years, you can end up getting to about a million people. Whether there are a million or whether there are less, it does not matter. Here we see one thing happening from the humans. They are building a city and they're considering to build a tower. And you may think to yourself, well, there's no big deal. There's no, but... As Lee Corso, one of my favorite analysts of college football, once said, not so fast, my friends. There is something that smells a little bit fishy to that, and it takes context to end up seeing it. It was just two chapters earlier where God saved humanity by putting Noah's family on a boat during the flood. And then after they get off, he gives them one command, just one. You had one job to do, and this is what he says to Noah's descendants. He says, Genesis 9 verse 1. Then he gave them instructions on what to do next. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, 
be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Fill the earth. God told them a simple thing to do, and that was to fill the earth. In other words, spread out and get around God's creation. This is the same order that he gave 2,000 years prior in the Garden of Eden. And also, it's a repetitive thing that God has been saying the last 10 chapters. So by principle of first mention, and by principle of repetition, we see this is massive in God's heart. He cares that they would get out and spread. It was the reason why we were created. The reason was to spread out and steward God's stuff well. His creation, one another, building societies. And you would think that the people at Babel, especially coming off of that boat a hundred years at earliest, would be perfectly fine and say, yep, I'm totally in with it. But that's not the case. They are not fine going with what God said. They actually respond by saying this, we want to stay here, which is an acknowledgement that they know God's command a hundred years prior. And then they give a reason. They say, we want to keep from being scattered. Keep from being scattered? Do you smell the arrogance in that statement? They think that they can thwart God's plans by what they do. It's preposterous looking back, but in the moment, it is real arrogance. Job, he had a different perspective. The man of the old covenant who got tested absolutely knows the plans of God. and knows that he cannot change them. Look with me in Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, God, and that no, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be stopped. And here at Babel, we see from humanity a slap to God's face. It is flagrant disobedience. You would think at this point the descendants of Noah having been saved 100 years prior by a boat from God and his wrath would end up making them think, I'm going to live out of a life of gratitude. You would think that they would be willing to obey God. It was just 100 years prior. But that is not the case. Why? Humanity is dealing with an exaggeration of themselves, with pride. Which is, an, which is an exaggeration of your importance. And it took this form of pride for God to do something. Here's this form of pride before we go, we go on to the consequences. You end up seeing in the text, it's this mentality. You can see it within, the human, within humans. It is, I know what's best. Why did they stop and build the city? They think they know best. They knew God's command to spread out, and they don't do it because they think they know best. They thought to themselves, I hear what you're saying, God. I recognize it. Oh, I value you so much, but I'm going to do my own thing. God, you don't understand. I, I hear what you're saying. You're telling me to do something, but it's way more convenient to just stay together. Church, we do this in a variety of ways today. We build cities that say, God, I'm interested in you until it's an inconvenience. We say to ourselves with the mentality, I hear your vision for my life, God, but if it alters for my preference, I don't know if I could totally trust you with it. It's the same attitude of knowing what is best. It's saying, God, I hear your wisdom, 
but I'm going to push ahead with my decision-making based off what I feel or what I know, or what circumstances may lend itself to being the best output based off my decisions, not God's wisdom. It's saying, I'm going to parent God's way until I want to parent my way. It's saying, God, I'm going to work unto you until it gets difficult. It's saying, God, I'm going to use my money for your kingdom until you tell me it's inconvenient. Do you understand? Are you picking up church with where I'm going? It is saying, God, I receive your wisdom. And yet still, I know what's best. That if push came to shove, I would choose my own will over yours. That's essentially what's happening here. It is building as they were building their own kingdoms instead of God's kingdom. What cities, church, are we building? Where do we think that we know best? Are we buying in to God's vision for our life? Or are we buying in whole stock into our vision? And the consequences, the thing, that, the thing why we should actually care about what we're doing with our decisions and why we're doing stuff is because there are consequences for building our own cities, for thinking what's best, for making those type of decisions. And we'll see that later on in the text. Let's get back into the text to see the next prideful attitude that we can resonate with from the people of Babylon. Verse 4, this will make us famous. Building the tower will make us famous. They build the city because they know better than God, and they build the tower to be famous. Credit. Recognition. Self-glorification. A look-at-me attitude. That is why they build the tower. This is another slap in God's face. We were made, church, to glorify Jesus, not ourselves. Some spirit-filled Christian has to give an amen louder than that. Sounds like we may not believe it. Go ahead. Give it to me, preacher. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. Church, what towers now are we building? What places within our heart are we obsessing over recognition, over attention from peers, coworkers, so much so that we're willing to obsess over it and possibly sin? What towers are we building? What area in our life have we lost focus on God? Interestingly enough, the recognition that we may be tempted into is the exact opposite of Jesus the Messiah's heart. Look with me. Isaiah 53, describing the Messiah. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about Jesus' appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. Jesus, our Messiah, God in the flesh, desires no recognition. In fact, during his public ministry, he pointed to the Father's name who sent him rather than his own. In fact, when public praise came his way, he deflected it, just like the moon would reflect the light from the sun. He said, no, not unto me, look unto the Father. Church, this is a temptation for you just as it is for me. I am tempted every single time that I come up here to garner 
your affections, respect, adoration, applause, thinking, man, that guy's growing as a preacher. Man, that guy, the Holy Spirit's using him in incredible ways. I'm tempted every single time when I come up here, either before the message or after the message. We're all want to text and find out, hey, did God speak to you? I'm like, whoa, hold on, let me, let me just, that sounds so egotistical, God. Let me just back off of my phone and let you just minister through your spirit by faith. The solution that I found that I hope is helpful is that I've just picked up the word of God and found it to be extremely satisfying to meditate and allow it to wash over my mind. Identity verses that have to do with recognition and affirmation. Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. I don't need your guys' recognition or respect or honor or whatever it is. I got it all from the Father. Colossians 2, that I and you are complete in our union with Christ, who is the head of all principalities and rulers in the seen and unseen realm. I don't have to get up here and add to my goodness. God considers me righteous because of what he's done on the cross for me, as well as you. Can you see where I'm going? In the baptism of Jesus, we end up seeing God the Father affirm his son, who I and those who are born again are now a part of, his family. He says, this is my son in whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. All those three things are applied to us, church. We don't need recognition, okay? We don't. God gives it to us. And there'll be crowns in heaven that we see to prove it after our last dying breath. So if you're born again, all those things, they're true of you. And it's because of these prideful attitudes, the look at me attitude and I know what's best attitude, that God ends up giving out discipline that we ended up reading about earlier. Let's look at the consequences. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, they set out to do whatever they do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the tower was called Babel. Yahweh is essentially saying, I am done with you. I'm done with you, humanity. Your attitude of always thinking what's best, I know you can feel this, parents. Your attitude of look at me and pride, pride, pride. God says, I'm done with you. I'm holy. You're other than you, don't, you can't even be in my midst, in front of my face. He says, I'm done with you. And could you blame him? It's only been 2,000 years, and there have been three rebellions from humanity. Three in 2,000 years. Incredible. But God is so patient, so merciful, long in faithfulness and endurance, that he doesn't just send another disastrous flood like he did last week, in which we read of. But he sends consequences because God is both that in character and also he will not be mocked. If you want to lift your nose up towards God, he'll give us what we deserve. Amen. So we end up seeing exactly what happens from this consequence. The first consequence for their pridefulness is that there is a scattering. He gives them languages and scatters them across 
all of God's green earth. Side note, this is an anthropology note right here. This scattering is the reason why we have multiple languages across the earth. And moreover, ethnic groups and skin colors, their ethnic groups, skin color, and facial features come after the Tower of Babel. So after the Tower of Babel, you can end up researching this on answers uh, in Genesis.org. They end up scattering, right? If you are, you have this language, like you're like, bro, I just started speaking French. I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> and you don't know what it is. And then you're looking around. Another dude is speaking an African dialect. And you're walking around and you're finding, okay, where are the people who talk like me who I understand, right? You ended up getting into groups at that moment. And then you would form societies, lifestyles, together over time. This was called ethnic groups. That's how ethnic groups formed. And then each ethnic group's skin color ended up adapting to the climate that they were in over thousands of years. So if you were of the north and you settled there, you were more white-complected. If you were near the equator, you were darker-complexioned. And you can end up seeing that just even nowadays. Europeans, Africans, or people in the Latin areas, you're just darker that way. And then you end up seeing that all of the facial body features of each ethnic group are uniquely dis distinct. Bridge of nose, hair, substance, what it all looks like. Because it's thousands of years of breeding within an ethnic group that ends up giving you a similar look as well as complexion. I share all these things, not to sound smart. Trust me, I am not. I had to research this this past week. But it is to battle against falser worldviews and its Darwinian evolution that ends up taking skin color and it says that it means that there's a pecking order of races that according to whatever started as the main color which would have been brown or black according to Darwin that whatever evolved which would have been white complexioned people meant that if you were white skinned that you were more evolved in his book The Descent of Man he writes this the white race, which he was a part of, was more advanced than these lower organisms, such as Pijamese, and he called different people groups savage, low, and degraded because of his understanding of skin color and evolution. And wherever skin color would evolve from, it would make a human better than. In other words, Darwinian evolution describes non-whites as less evolved, inferior, and savages. But the Bible gives a better answer. The word of God gives a better answer to the value of life and to the reason why we look different. And it's that skin color was formed wherever our ancestors ended up settling. And it is that the value of a human being is based on the image of God, which means that we're all valuable. That is the only reason I'm bringing this up. It's just another piece of evidence to show the biblical worldview is far more satisfactory than other worldviews. All right, let's get back into the text. God is so done with humanity, right? He's scattered them. He's tired of them knowing best. He's tired of them saying, look at me instead of look at my creator. So he doesn't want to just scatter them. He actually, in which we don't see exactly in the text, he doesn't scatter them, but he actually cares for us so much so that when he scattered the area, he scattered them with angelic, heavenly beings 
to oversee each area and region that the ethnic groups settled in. He sent created beings that were a part of the heavenly realms, his divine counsel, also known as his staff team, if you will. And he says, you're going to look after these certain people groups all across the world. Where do we get this information? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Moses, the writer of Genesis and Deuteronomy, gives a behind-the-scenes sneak peek of what happened at Babel. Let's look at Deuteronomy 32. Ask your father, and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, meaning Babel, he established the boundaries of the people according to the number in his heavenly court. For the people of Israel, Jacob, belonged to the Lord Jacob as his special possession. So God is saying, you obviously don't want my fathering. So I'm going to give you stepdads. I'm going to give you lesser created heavenly beings to oversee you because you don't want my oversight. Evidenced by Babel, evidenced by Genesis 6 and Genesis 3, the Eden and the flood. And so I'm going to give you lesser spiritual beings. Here's the issue, though. These lesser spiritual beings end up rebelling against God as they're overseeing the nations. Look with me. We know this in Psalm 82 because God is about to scold all of the rulers in the unseen realm. God presides over the heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked, you unseen rulers? I say you are gods, but you are all children of the Most High. Verse 7, you won't see up here. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. So after these rulers end up promoting themselves and turning them away, the nations away from worship of their creator, Yahweh, and then they end up ruling unjustly. They end up getting this scolding, and when you see you are gods, the word God here is Elohim. Elohim is a generic term for heavenly beings. So it's a reference to the divine counsel. It's not a reference to God, meaning Yahweh. Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohims. He's uniquely cut from a different cloth, and he is the reason why in this text he says, you, you heavenly beings, you rulers, you dominions, and you powers in the unseen realm over humanity, you are my children, meaning he created them. Are you tracking with me, church? Okay, so this matters because Paul's going to write about it, and it actually influences the way we live right now. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, in the New Covenant Scriptures, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Authorities, cosmic powers over this present age against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The unseen rulers, principalities, and authorities are still over regions of this world today. You can identify them by the unique sin of certain regions, certain people groups, or certain areas. I came from California What's unique about the West Coast and the Northeast? Atheism. Not believing there is a creator. What is unique about the Midwest? Religion. Dead religion. Also known as works-based religion. No fire for relationship, but just go and check the box. What is unique 
in a sin struggle right now across our nation. Transgendered confusion. Can you see that it's not just people within us saying, you know what, we're all going to get together. We're going to all agree to disobey God. Can you see that there are unseen rebellions that are promoting all these specific sins in our nation? You go to North Omaha and there's murder there. Why isn't there murder here like that? Unique principalities and strong men that rule over certain areas. And in Bennington and in Elkhorn and in close parts of Northwest Omaha, the unique strongholds are materialism, comfort, and appearance. Materialism, comfort, and appearance. I'm looking at one of the best-dressed congregations in the area. I am. I am also looking at very insecure people in their appearance and keeping up with the Joneses. Just speculating. These are the unique things, sin patterns. There's no coincidence. And here's the thing. When we buy into those three flavors of sin, we have to know we are buying into a lying spirit that is promoting that in our area. We're not just buying into our fleshly desires, but something far greater. And do you know why we planted this church two and a half years ago? It's to advance the kingdom of light into the dominion of darkness. It's so a fellow like me who happens to be up here this Sunday comes to you and says, hey, here's the spiritual reality of the area. Spiritually dry desert, as we said two years ago. What are we going to do about it? What, are, what is our praying life looking like? What's our households looking like? Do you know the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy? Are you wondering why your household is terrible and a mess right now and seems like it's been hit by a spiritual hurricane? It ain't just you. You're buying into lies from the enemy of this area. But there's far greater news for us. Church, I get the opportunity to tell you this morning that the principalities back then and the strength that they have then and yes, they still do rule and oversee right now, has no strength on the church. Not one. Where do we get this text at? Colossians 2. He, meaning Jesus, canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, here it is, church, he, meaning Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. At the resurrection, Jesus disarmed the rulers and principalities of the air. He scored a touchdown and celebrated in their face. He slammed the ball and told them to hold the L. That's exactly what the resurrection did. Church, the resurrection. The resurrection was God's payback. If you've ever seen taken that's diet compared to what Jesus did to the unseen realm at the resurrection will we partner with him in it will we live in victory in view of it church because of his resurrection this means that the power of God is in each one of you if you've believed the Holy Spirit has taken up residence and will increase you in fullness of measure according to our surrender and our asking which means that we do not have to go with the Joneses we do not have to keep up with appearances. Our kids do not have to be scholars. Our kids do not have to be scholar athletes. They need Jesus. And Jesus needs people to talk through, meaning parents. 
and grandparents in Jesus' name. If you agree, say amen. amen. That's what the kingdom needs. The thing that will get in our way, though, are the towers and the cities that we built. The towers that we built that want recognition and we lose sight of advancing God's kingdom. The cities that we have of always thinking, I know what's best. When times get hard, I can't trust you, God. I know what's best, essentially. What towers and buildings are we building? Church, let me remind us that seeking God's kingdom first is much more satisfying than building our own. Matthew 6, verse 33 says, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you, that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. See God first in the attention, the recognition, the adoration, the companionship because you feel lonely, the completeness because you feel lacking. It'll all be satisfied in God. All satisfied in God. It is a less exhausting life to live born again. Way more satisfying. C.S. Lewis, British theologian of the 1900s, put it this way. Put first things first, and second things are thrown in. Put second things first, and you lose both first and second things. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. Thank you for bringing us good news in view of spiritual realities. Help us take account for the rest of the day and throughout the week where we want recognition and don't hand it over to you and where we want our will done and not yours. Grow your church in holiness, God. In Jesus' name, amen.